Welcome to episode 10 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church, where Clayton and I uh, answer questions from you all as we go through reading the Bible in a year and summarize and preview next week's readings. We have one question that was submitted to us, uh, and it's not regarding last week's readings, but the week before. I suspect that's going to happen more and more as people um, kind of undulate with the reading plan, and that is okay. If you have a question from several weeks ago, please do not be afraid to send it in. We'll be glad to discuss it. Uh, This question is from Leviticus 6, verses 1 through 7, and it reads this way. I think you said that there is no sacrifice for intentional sin, but it seems like Leviticus 6, 1 to 7 is describing that situation. The penalty is is sacrificing a guilt offering plus restitution, plus 20%. Not to say Leviticus is ranging into medieval indulgence territory, but shouldn't this give us confidence that there was, is forgiveness when we repent of intentional sin? There's two things here that I want to respond to. Uh, The first is the second part of this question. Shouldn't this give us confidence that there was, is forgiveness when we repent of intentional sin? Whether or not Leviticus has sacrifices for intentional sin has no bearing on whether or not we have forgiveness offered to us for our intentional sin. We are on the other side of the the cross. We are in a different covenant. Um, The Lord has provided through his death, resurrection, and ascension, not only forgiveness for our sins, but a pathway to eternal life with him. And so... I want to I want to make sure that's clear, and I know the person who asked this question that is clear for, but they did ask it this way, so I want to respond that way. That whether Leviticus six one to seven is about intentional sin or not has no bearing on whether or not we Christians, when we sin intentionally, can still be forgiven for that sin. Now, the question is a good one. Um, there, the idea that this is still talking about unintentional sin is in verse. Four, which in the NIV reads this way. When they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion, what was entrusted to them or the lost property they found or whatever it was they swore falsely about. And so one of the things that's happening here is that you have um, complicated relationships and the ability for things to be done that were unintentionally false Now, a lot of these words here um, seem to be describing intentional um, cheating or falsehood or any of that. And if that is the case, then yes, these would be intentional sins. But then verse 4 doesn't make a lot of sense with them realizing their guilt. What I take this to mean is that these are things that were done, wrongs that were committed, that were not realized as wrongs until afterwards. A person swearing that their field goes thus far, finding out later that their field actually doesn't go as far as they thought. Or a person believing that a tool was theirs and then finding out later that the tool is not theirs. These are the kinds of things that I think Leviticus 6 is is discussing. The injustices committed against one another in a community unintentionally. Now, um, I'm not... I'm not, uh, that's not a unanimous view. Uh, scholars do disagree about which kind of sin is being talked about in Leviticus 6. But the way I read this, this is still about unintentional sin. I think this was from our discussion two weeks ago. What we said was, is that there is no sacrifice for unrepentant. Unrepentant, yes. Intentional sin. And so that is also still 
very true that even if somebody does intentionally cheat someone, it's the act of repentance that moves it into the territory where it can be sacrificially forgiven. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to, the readings for this coming week will be from the last chapter of Leviticus and then the first 18 chapters of Numbers. As Pastor Ben mentioned last week, the book of Leviticus is about the tabernacle and the rites and practices required in order for Yahweh's people to be able to safely dwell with him in their midst. The book of Leviticus concludes with some general laws, mostly focusing on vows and dedications. And then the book of Numbers begins one month after the completion of the tabernacle, and it lasts about 38 years. It records the preparation of Yahweh's people to leave Mount Sinai, their departure, and then all of the tragic events that happen afterwards. In the book of Numbers, we will see a transition from the generation that left Egypt and dies in the wilderness to a new generation born in the wilderness who will eventually enter the promised land. The book of Numbers has been divided up in a few different ways, but there is definitely a transition between the first 10 chapters of the book and what comes afterward. Leviticus, as we've said, is focused primarily on the tabernacle and the holy God and the needs of the people to be able to be near that holy God. In the book of Numbers, the narrative turns outward from the tabernacle to the people who will travel alongside it. Beginning with the Levites, those who are placed in charge of assisting Aaron and his descendants in the practice of Yahweh worship and caring for the tabernacle. The Levites have a special place among Yahweh's people. The firstborn from among the people all belong to Yahweh, and the Levites are chosen as a tribe to be set apart for this reason. Not because Levi was the firstborn, but because when the Israelites worshipped the golden calf, the Levites were the ones who rallied to Moses, thus giving them firstborn status. And so at the very beginning of Numbers, a census is taken, but Moses is told not to reckon the Levites because the, the Levites will reckon the tabernacle. In other words, they are holy, set apart for the worship of Yahweh. And in fact, as Yahweh's people travel, the Levites are to travel surrounding the tabernacle as its protectors and also as priests, as a buffer between Yahweh and his people. And the different clans within the tribe of Levi were given different responsibilities with the tabernacle, particularly regarding its setup, teardown, and travel arrangements. From here, the purity of the Israelite camp is considered. There are some laws regarding justice and fidelity, which harken back somewhat to the laws we've already seen in Exodus and Leviticus, as well as an opportunity for a form of asceticism or self-denial for the sake of holiness. We then get this remarkable picture of the Israelites' obedience and worship around the tabernacle and the presence of Yahweh among them by cloud and flame and is resting on the tabernacle and speaking with Moses. And then the Israelites leave Sinai and the reader is filled with this sense of awe and hope of Yahweh traveling with his people. As you read it, you might almost be invited to reflect, this is perfect. Yahweh's people are obeying him, and he is fulfilling his covenant promises to Abraham. The promise of descendants is fulfilled already, and they are heading to the land they've been promised. What could possibly go wrong? Well, the book of Numbers does not leave you in suspense. What follows is a story that, if we're being honest, all of us can relate to. Despite everything Yahweh does and has done for his people, they complain a lot. 
The next part of Numbers records the unfaithfulness, rebellion, apostasy, and frustration of the people set against the background of God's faithfulness, presence, provision, and mercy. To begin with, the people complain about the manna they receive from Yahweh, this bland, unknown substance he uses to feed them. They want meat. They even say, remember that wonderful food we had when we were slaves in Egypt. Next come several rebellions, each with different leaders and in different situations. Each ends the same way. Several times in these chapters, Moses has to plea for Yahweh not to become so tired of the complaining and rebelliousness of the people that he wiped them out. Each time the rebellion is put down and punishment from Yahweh is given, including a vow he makes that the generation that left Egypt will die in the wilderness, never seeing the promised land. Now, despite the sadness of these events, there are some wonderful moments. Pay attention to the relationship between Moses and the people and Moses and Yahweh. Ask yourself if you can relate to the people as they complain and then meditate on the incredible graciousness of Yahweh to continue to travel with them. Also, look out for Joshua, an important character for the rest of the Pentateuch and after. In short, you could say, as you read the book of Numbers, that something is wrong. We begin with this idyllic picture of God's people obeying him, worshiping him, and move quickly to see their rebellion as soon as they are met with difficulty. Once again, we are invited to reflect on our own spiritual journey with Yahweh and realize the absurdity of so many of our complaints in the wake of his goodness grace, and providence. So Leviticus 27, you mentioned, is about vows and dedications of people, our animals, our land, and, and it starts talking about people as votive offerings and kind of the valuation of how to be redeemed out of that. Mm -hmm. And so if you could just give us a bit more of the context about like, what are they talking about? What does that mean for a person to be a votive offering? Why would that happen? And then why would someone need to be redeemed out of that situation. So I want to I want to start by saying that I'm not 100% sure actually as I started answering this question I realized that um, I was unsure about a few things and just did a little more reading. But a votive offering is a a um, person being given to in dedication of worship like for service around the tabernacle being especially devoted to that. And what could happen is as a person is, is, is given in that way, they become Yahweh's in a very special and particular way. If they are going to be redeemed out of that, in other words, if at some point the family of that person uh, wants to, needs them back, um, not in special service to the tabernacle, but as um, a working member of the family again, then they have a need to redeem them because that person now belongs to Yahweh. So that that the money, the table that's kind of discussed, is used as um, a way to bring them back into the family. So this is about dedicated religious service and what it takes to bring a person back out of that. Why are uh, women valued less than men? Because Yahweh hates women. No. Mm. Um, women are um, require less of a, a fee for redemption than men. Because the manual labor that they are going to be doing in their, their service 
is thought to be less than what men will be doing in their service for a variety of reasons. There is a period of time that they are every month where they are just not allowed to be around uh, the tabernacle um, or the, the holy things. It is generally thought that men are going to be capable of more manual labor than women are going to be. And so the, the thought here, again, is not actually a value difference between does Yahweh love men more or women more. This is about, given the kind of service that we're, we're talking about, the, the men are going to be doing more of it, and so more of an expense is required to redeem them. Do you think this law, these laws are meant to encourage people being redeemed out of tabernacle service or discourage? Like, is it viewing this as positive or negative, do you think? Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know that it has to be either. It's just the way to do it. I mean, the person has become Yahweh's in a special way, but Yahweh does not want to leave a family without a worker or uh, parents without a child, or, um, you know, if uh, uh, there's a need for an aunt or an uncle to help raise someone, um, Yahweh wants to make a way that your vow of dedication matters and is real. Because if you could just take them back, then the vow didn't mean anything, right? The, the offering didn't mean anything. And so this is a, a way to make a real offering and redeem it. Um, I think that that's important. Why do you suppose the book of Leviticus ends this way? That's really unclear. So the, the chapter 26 makes a great ending point. If you, were, if you were to arrange this book, you might be able to come to the arrangement it's in, except that chapter 27 would not be where it's at. There are a couple of thoughts. Um, some people think that, that Moses you know, crafted the book of Leviticus and then subsequently some issues came up that required um, additions being made to the scroll. I, I think that is a very practical idea um, that, that suits me well, other than to say, um, a lot of the times when we come to those kinds of conclusions that, oh, this was Moses just needing to add something on after he was done, a lot of the times that's a way of us writing something off and missing a deep significance. I don't know what the deep significance of chapter 27 is, but since it's so oddly placed, and it's, it's oddly placed originally, there's other places in the Bible where we see a, a small pericope, a, a small story or a small bit of scripture that doesn't appear to have been there in the oldest manuscripts, but then it kind of gets added in later on. Um, it's, it's genuine scripture. It's just misplaced. That's not something to worry about. We'll talk about it when we get there. That's not what's happening here. This is... I think Moses putting this, this chapter here. So there is likely a deep and important significance here. I mean, it talks about the redemption of, of humans. It talks about Jubilee. Those might all be um, themes that are intended to be here at the end of Leviticus. Hmm. That does not take away from the fact that it is just a weird way for Leviticus to end. And to my eyes would read much better midway through the book. Um, so numbers has a lot going on. <laughs> Does it? Does uh, numbers have a lot going on? And I guess first and foremost, why the census? I mean, that's how the book begins and ends. Well, not quite the end, but there's another census towards the end. Mm -hmm. uh, why? Why do the Israelites need to be numbered? So there are there are practical reasons for that, and then I think, and I think none of them are the primary one. Um, the practical reasons, of course, is you're organizing a people and you're getting ready to move 
away from a central location across a wilderness somewhere else, you need to be able to keep track of people. And one of the things you do is take inventory of what you've got. You take inventory of the animals, the supplies, the grains, but also how many mouths you're going to be feeding. That's an important thing that they need to know as they travel. That's a practical answer. I don't think it's the primary one. The primary one, I think, is to leave in no uncertain terms confidently that the promise to Abraham of descendants has been fulfilled. Mm. It is not being fulfilled. It has been fulfilled. This is a large group of people Mm -hmm. that have all come from Abraham. We read about their ancestor and the promise he was given by Yahweh just a few books of the Bible ago. And we see now, over the course of hundreds of years, centuries, how Yahweh has been fulfilling that promise he made to Abraham. And I think that's the primary reason why Numbers starts there. Is a, it, Again, Numbers begins very optimistically. It's a very good beginning. It leaves you with high hopes. Right here at the beginning, it's like, you remember that covenant that all this is about? Um, the first promise has been fulfilled. And mm-hmm. here's proof. Um, I think that's what's going on. Census data is not exciting for us to read a lot of the time, but if we read that the way that it's meant as a detailed explanation of the fulfillment of the promise, uh, the fulfillment of the covenant, then I think that we can we can understand why it's so important that it was there. Because hmm. otherwise, why would you include it in 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 a scroll that's going to belong to your people for centuries later? Do they need to know exactly how many people in each tribe? I don't think the numbers matter other than as as proof of the fulfillment of the covenant. So in Numbers 2, it's laid out where the different uh, tribal families are supposed to camp around the tabernacle. Do you see any significance in who camps where or why the tribes are, are grouped together in the ways that they are? Well, I think that there's some importance with the Levites being around the tabernacle. Um, and we talked about that already. Beyond that, I'm not sure that we're to take um, significance here, uh, perhaps, but the, that's not something I'm aware of. Do you have any sense of significance with the uh, placements of the tribes? I mean, I just know that there ha- I mean, there just is a lot in the literature about that. Yes. And different theories about, you know, we yeah. were told growing up at Peoria Christian that they camped in a cross shape around the tabernacle. Just if you like calculate how big the different tribes were and then lay it out, it kind of forms a. I mean, I I uh, I mean that's a nice this. thought. I don't think that that's neither do I. That that's what's being reflected here because I don't think they would have camped in strict geometric parallelograms. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am confident that that's not what's what we're supposed to read, and it would be bizarre for the the readers of the Pentateuch. Uh, before well, Jesus sure, because to... they had they would wouldn't right. have had any concept there. I do wonder, and I don't know. I mean, this is just again, it's just a uh, you know that that they ascribe significance to like the cardinal directions in a different mm-hmm. way than we do. Yeah, west means something. Again, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I think it's just for everybody to know that <laughs> you know that the different directions kind of have meanings mm-hmm. ascribed to them. Especially, I think east is generally the direction of exile. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tabernacle doors are to the east and, and uh, you know, so anyway, so that's true for other things. I don't know. I would want to do more looking into this in terms of the tribes and and uh, whether those things have any, any meaning. I just, yeah, I didn't know if you. So, no, I'm familiar. I've read. So a lot of the church fathers 
um, dive into different ideas about what the, the meanings could be. They tended to like things like this and would draw out deep symbolism. Um, and that may be, I mean, it really may be. I just, I just don't think so. I mean, even things that we would expect to see people um, near to each other. Uh, we don't like it wouldn't surprise me if Judah and Benjamin were mm-hmm. were next to each other, but they're not. And they're not even like directly opposite one another. They're just in different places. So in Numbers chapter five, there is a very strange ritual that I would like you to comment on and explain about what happens if a man suspects his wife of adultery, starting in verse two, 11. 11. So Numbers 5 as a whole is, is a interlude in what's happening. It's a, a kind of sidestep um, from what Numbers has been talking about thus far. And it's, it's handling justice issues, um, purity issues. And one of the, the concerns here is apparently the impurity, apparently the impurity of adultery. Um, adultery is a sin that's already been discussed that has a hefty um, punishment attached to it. And the concern here seems to be that men who suspect their wives have had an affair need a way to be able to determine this so that they can take appropriate punishment measures if she has indeed committed adultery. That is that is how it reads on the surface. I think there's a whole lot more going on here. In fact, I don't think adultery is what's being dealt with primarily at all. Um, I think there's a really strong case that the power men have over women is being severely limited here. So as you read this, the way it goes is if a man suspects that a woman has had an affair, uh, has committed adultery, then he can bring his wife to the tabernacle and she will be with some offerings and she will be made to drink what is basically like a, a reads like a magic potion. Um, it's made up of holy water and some dirt taken from the earth and it will be bitter in her mouth. And if she has not committed adultery, then it will have no effect on her. If she has committed adultery, then it will cause her to miscarry and cause some difficult to understand exactly what they mean, um, physical effects that will make it very obvious that she is guilty. So there will be, like she'll swell up, she'll have all these these physical bad things happen in a way that it will become very obvious that she is in fact guilty. Okay, so why would, why would this be included? Some people think this is just the misogyny of the time. I think what's happening here is women are in a bad spot as far as credibility in the ancient world, um, trustworthiness in the ancient world. And so if a husband accuses his wife of adultery, um, it's easy for her to end up on the bad end of um, being charged or um, being thought guilty. So what this is, is a perfect way to to be able to, to protect her. If she's innocent and her husband's accusing her of infidelity, all she need do is go to the the tabernacle, drink some water with some dirt in it, and if nothing bad happens to her, then she is innocent. The husband cannot accuse her of adultery without this 
without the, the bad things that are supposed to happen from this test. Now, if the woman is actually guilty, the thought is she's not going to drink it. As I read the, the rabbi, as I read the Midrash on this passage, um, if the woman is actually guilty, she won't drink the potion because then she'll not only lose the child, it will become incredibly obvious that she was guilty in the first place. So if she refuses, then she's known to be guilty. If she does drink the potion, then she's innocent and nothing happens. And the husband cannot repudiate her, cannot divorce her, cannot cause her to be punished for adultery. Now, do I wish that this also included some way for a woman to accuse her husband of adultery? Yes, I do. In fact, adultery takes two, and presumably that man that she would have committed adultery with is also married. But I don't think this is actually dealing with adultery. I think this is dealing with jealousy and envy. A husband's paranoia about his wife's fidelity and a way of limiting his ability to harm her when it gets away from him. And so this provides a way where he cannot divorce or punish her just because he's suspicious. It's a strange one. It is a weird story. It's one of the weird stories that we I, talk about. Uh, you know, we, we talked a couple of times that the laws are never really just about the thing. You know, they're not, none of them are meant to be taken strictly by the letter. And I don't want to necessarily say that the laws are parables, because I think that parable for us is more of like, here's a story about something and that doesn't necessarily have, like you don't, you don't enforce a parable uh, like a law. At the same time, I think that ancient people might have thought about law codes differently than we think about, like modern statutes and, and courts and things like that. Um, and so it's like, I don't know, did this ever happen? We don't know. There's no narrative examples of it ever happening. Was it, like we talked about last time, more of a deterrent, you know, that like they would never, a guilty woman would never drink it because of the fear of this happening to her? Is, is should we take it almost more like a legal parable and, you know, think about like, does the woman represent Israel? And is this about idolatry, mm. you know, in a big sense and allegiance to Yahweh and you know, especially coming off of the covenant curses of Leviticus, like, is this a way of saying, like, you've accepted, you've dr you've drunk, so to speak, the, the, the sacred words, and so now it's going to destroy you if <laughs> you don't remain faithful. Could it be both, you know, again, all of those things, is God just doing one thing when he gives a law to Israel? I don't think so. And again, I think, I think that you know, if you hear if you hear the phrase "the laws are parables" and you like recoil a little bit, and you're like, "Well, but does that mean that God wasn't serious?" It's like, okay, so let's just hit the brakes because for this to have any use for modern Christians at all, we must believe that they're parables. We must believe something that. like parables, yeah. something like that. And there might be a better word. I'll think about that. You know, but that they are meant for our instruction, but not for our enforcement. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh and so yeah and 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 i think that the way you see paul and again we'll you know we'll get here eventually but like when he talks about laws or they quote laws often it has little to do with the law's original context you know i think i, I don't i think it's in corinthians when he talks about don't muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain that's a law and it seems to be about not muzzling the ox while it treads out the grain, but Paul's obviously taking it as a reference to, you know, you need to pay people for their work, including somebody in Paul's position who's 
who's a quote-unquote kind of professional minister of the gospel. So it's like we see scripture itself do this, that it doesn't treat the laws strictly uh, as what they are, you know, that they are. Again, there's probably a better word than parable. I'll I'll think about what a better word is, but just that they are... They're about more than just a law concerning a man's jealousy on the face of it. Yeah. You know, that they're they're pointing beyond themselves. You know, you get a group of a group of people that all watch football together, and as they then talk about life, they will find themselves comparing things to football a lot. Using things known about football to explain or describe things that are happening in their lives. And I think what the one thing that's happening here is a set of references is being given that they can then use to develop, speak, and understand wisdom in the world around them. Um, Something I didn't say also is that while there's no punishment listed for the husband, if he, say, keeps bringing his wife to the tabernacle, accusing her of unfaithfulness, um, the idea is that there would be shame attached to that Mm -hmm. kind of uh, uh, insecurity and that there would be social consequences for a man who's wrong when he accuses his wife of unfaithfulness. So, that yeah, like you said, there are... Numbers is, is be, quickly becomes a book of rebellion, a story of rebellion yeah, as it goes on. And so Numbers 12, Aaron and Miriam turn against yeah. Moses. And I just wanted some clarity or your thoughts on. So Numbers 12 starts by saying that they're speaking against him be, on account of his, his non-Israelite wife. But then when they are called before the Lord, it seems like it's more about like questioning his authority, Moses' authority. And so just like what, wh- what's happening what were Aaron there? and Moses, what issue were they taking or what, what was going on yeah. with that? So there's um, some uncertainty here about the Cushite wife. If that means Zipporah, which is what I think, then their frustration is that Moses is just married to a non-Israelite and he's leading the Israelites. And that that is a, um, it's basically a racist issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the other possibility is that this is Moses having taken a second wife who is unnamed, because it we don't we don't we don't have a lot of evidence that Cushite would accurately describe Zipporah. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, Zipporah's people probably moved a lot, and so it's very difficult to say with any kind of confidence. I don't see Moses having married a second wife, but maybe. Um, I mean, there's just nothing about it. If it's a second wife, then that might be the issue. It might be that he was not supposed to do that or that he's insulted Zipporah in some way. Um, But I think more likely this is Miriam and Aaron feeling close to power and not quite having it and becoming jealous the Hebrew is interesting here. I looked at it a little bit because a commentator had talked about it. The words about the talking against are all feminine, which means one of two things. Either um, that whoever wrote this thought that this kind of rebellion was a feminine thing, which I don't think is the case, mm-hmm. or that this is Miriam primarily rebelling against Moses and mm-hmm. Aaron simply remaining silent. That seems to fit. Aaron going along with a rebellion is something we've seen in Exodus. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and then later on saying, what was I supposed to do? You know, Mm -hmm. Miriam is scary. (laughs) Um, But uh, uh, it does seem that Miriam is the primary offender. 
which then is an explanation as to why Miriam is the one who is stricken with leprosy or is stricken and sent outside of the, the camp. Otherwise, if they're equal parts in it, it's very strange that Miriam is the one who's cast out. Um, and, and you just try to imagine being Miriam, knowing when you come back, the whole camp has been waiting for your exile to end. Mm-hmm. Like all the people because of you are, are staying put until your what what is the amount of time that she's a week yeah for a week they've just all gotta gotta hang out because you're confined outside of the camp and and Yahweh's analogy to Moses is intense and it shows his displeasure um, because Moses cries out and says Lord heal her mm-hmm. and and Yahweh replies to Moses if her father had spit in her face would she not have been in disgrace for seven days confine her outside the camp for seven days after that she can come back Yahweh's angry Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and lets it be known this was not good, mm-hmm. and it could just be a sibling squabble. It could, I mean, Miriam, Miriam rescued Moses when he was a baby. Miriam may feel that she's just been unfairly maligned or not given uh, partnership in this, and this is the only place where Miriam is spoken of badly. Otherwise, she's an excellent character, the namesake for Mary, the mother of Joseph or Jesus. So chapter 13, the Israelites send the scouts, the spies, into the promised land, and they find that it is indeed flowing with milk and honey, and there's Mm. some, I think, some callbacks to Eden, Eden language and what they find. Uh, But they also encounter something that uh, scares them enough to say that we should find a new leader and head back to Egypt. So I'd like to, just for you to speak to, like... So they are. They say that there are giants in the land, and they mention something called the Nephilim or the Nephilim, and uh, what what's going on? What is that? What yeah. were these things? Did we talk or about these people? the Nephilim in Gen- when we did Genesis? Not really. Yeah, okay. we we referenced it, but we didn't <sighs> spend a lot of time there. All right. So there is a whole rabbit hole here. Mm. Um, I don't think we want to dive all the way down it. So. Mm-hmm. Let's say this. And if you have questions and want to hear more about this, we are happy to talk about it. This but. is just a thing that ben, Pastor Ben and I get real excited about. It's an, an aspect of the narrative of scripture we we relatively recently discovered. I mean, it's been a few years ago now, or not discovered, but really came to understand better. We're glad to talk about it. We don't have to here. Um, so the Nephilim harken back all the way to Genesis chapter 6, where we get this, this story about the um, sons of God who are trying to, who are making babies with the daughters of men. And the, the thought there is that these are spiritual beings, um, angelic beings, fallen angels, having trying to have babies with humans. And the offspring are these powerful giant creatures. And so when they come back and they say that the Nephilim are there, um, what they're saying is there are there are giants that are tied to evil that are populating this land. This is not something we can do. Um, they were made frightened. And whether they actually saw Nephilim there, I think, is up to debate. But the this is the narrative they're giving because what they want to do is they want to turn back because of what they, the fear that they felt in scouting the land. And they, when, when Caleb then disagrees uh, with them, he says he saw the same things they did, fortified peoples. Um, basically, I think that these scouts saw 
superior military um, forces that they did not feel like they could go up against. Caleb does not disagree with any of their report. He just says, yeah, but we can do it. I'm reminded of a, uh, uh, when I was in West Africa, we had a, a storm coming that was going to ruin just a really important ministry event. And all of us were just kind of wondering what we should do. And one of the, uh, one of the Africans that was with us just looked at us kind of surprised and says, we can stop it, meaning we should pray. In other words, the God that we serve is not intimidated by the military installations or groups that, that the scouts had seen. But then they, they take the bad, they take the report they'd given and they, they kind of add to it. They actually start to insult the land, which is a problem because this is the promised land. This is the land of the promise, the covenant promises. And they start to lie about it. They say in verse 32, the land we explored devours those living in it. And we saw the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. So in other words, there's there's evil demonic giants and the land eats people. They're they're lying to get Israel to run away. And that's um that's not good. But that leads to a rebellion. This is a a very sad thing because this should have been exciting. This should have been only good and it's turned by unfaithfulness into something else. In chapter 16, um, this story always gets me, and I, I just I just want to share like a personal anecdote. I had read this story so many times when I read it again, this was years ago now, and it and something struck me anew. So there's this combining of two rebellions that happen here. Um, there's some Levites and some Reubenites. And it seems like the Levites are upset because they want more um, they want more religious authority. And the Reubenites are upset because they want more political authority. In fact, they, the Reuben should have been the firstborn in their eyes. And so this kind of combining of the, the, the religious and the secular power, um, like they, they desire this. And they are put down in two different ways. The Levites, Korah's people, are killed by fire from Yahweh. But then, do you know what happens to the Reubenites? They are swallowed by the earth. Yeah, that's just one of those details that you read. And it's just like, I had passed over it so many. Yahweh made the earth open up and swallow them. It's wild. Um, I just couldn't. Yeah, so it starts in verse 12. 32. Yeah, yeah. so in verse 30, Moses has told everyone to get back from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, this is how you're going to know. That, that these these men are being killed by Yahweh. If they die a natural death, uh, then I, I'm not, I don't know Yahweh at all. But if something crazy is about to happen, if the earth opens and swallows them, then you should believe me. And as soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead. With everything they owned, the earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. Holy smokes! <laughs> I mean, that's wild. And so, uh, yeah, I just wanted to draw attention to these stories that you've probably read before and encourage you to not read them too quickly. Um, just because a story is familiar, do not skip it. You'll, you'll miss details that are just very big. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. 
Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.